1: All right, re-rolling on my end. What movie are we doing? (laughs) 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 You'll know it from the song. Oh, God. Ken Kesey wrote a novel that was highly acclaimed. About a group of kooky patients that were labelled insane Ooh, then a new patient arrived And he made them all feel so alive Kirk Douglas bought the rights and put it up on Broadway He played the starring role of Randall P. McMurphy then Douglas tried to get a movie version of it made But nobody would make it cause they thought it was lame Then Kirk Douglas's son Michael Douglas said Hey pops, I'd like to try producing, can I give this a shot? He took the script around and finally found him some cash But the only catch was that they no longer wanted his dad They wanted Jack they thought Nicholson was best. For one flew over the-
0: perfectly in tune.
1: Welcome, everybody, to the Cinema Possessed podcast. My name is Jack Bishop. And I'm Justin Nijan. And with us, as always, is the nurse ratchet of this podcast, <laughs> Corey Clifford.
2: Damn, nurse ratchet, eh?
1: Well, you do give me pills every day.
2: That's true. I do. You love a schedule. I do. I auditioned for the show. Didn't get the There you go. Was it for the main role? No, that's Sarah Paulson. You are not
1: going up against the Paulson?
2: No. One day. One day I hope I can have that honor. You will. You will. And
1: each week we take a close look at one film in our combined DVD and Blu-ray collections and discuss what it was about it that originally possessed us to want to possess it. We'll debate whether or not the film still holds that power over us today. And in the end, we'll decide once and for all if it deserves to keep its place on the shelf or be tossed out the window like a marble water fountain.
2: Can you um, move this so I can see Justin's face? Of course. Little little, uh, insight for all the audience members. Uh, We've been having technical difficulties for the past hour and I thought Jack was going to break his computer with a baseball bat.
0: I almost did. You think he he was going to go R.P. McMurphy on... uh, Yes, mm
2: -hmm. I did. ...on that thing? I sure did.
1: Justin, what movie are we talking about today? We are talking
0: 1975's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Do you think there's anything wrong with your mind, really?
2: Not a thing, Doc. Uh, excuse me, Miss. Do you think it might be possible to turn that music down so maybe a couple of the boys could talk?
1: Your hand is staining my window.
2: God Almighty, she's got you guys coming and
1: going. A little change never hurt, huh? A little variety. I oh, think he's dangerous.
2: Jesus! I mean, you guys do nothing but complain about how you can't stand it in this place here, and then you haven't got the guts just to walk out. I mean, what do you think you are? For Christ's sake, crazy or something? Well, you're not. <laughs> How about it, you creeped, you lunatic, mental defective? <laughs> Thank you, Mac. Thank you.
0: I'll never forget you. What a strange
1: trailer.
2: Yeah, very weird.
1: Well, in the 70s, they had interesting trailers back then. Didn't have any announcer or anything saying,
2: a man, a little nutty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. The whole movie was stranger than I remembered.
1: When did you first see this movie?
2: I'm pretty sure in like high school drama class is like what I I remember. I don't I didn't remember it super well. Um, but I do remember I feel like I read this play too, like in high school. Mm-hmm. It's very weird for me to think about because I think this was also like a production that was done by a lot of high schools. And that feels Mm, problematic. Yes. I don't know. It feels most strange. high schools also
0: do the book.
2: Yeah. 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 I mean, for the most part, when
1: high schools do productions of plays, they often do edit them in certain ways, and so I would imagine you would need to edit certain portions of it, but I wouldn't say that the actual play itself would be a problematic thing.
2: No, just more so like having like high schoolers be like, I'm crazy. Like, just like in general, I'm like, this would be, it would be such a bad, I could see so many high Mm -hmm. school bad productions of this play.
1: Yeah, I could see the depiction of Chief going wrong. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This book is like one of the most banned books in America. I think just because it's it's very um, anti-authority. And so I think a lot of conservatives deem it they look at it as like promoting antisocial behavior and so uh there's a lot of a lot of schools that will ban it it's so
0: funny to me how they're so afraid of books
1: know,
0: like like it's just straight up nazi germany yeah or like fahrenheit 451 like you're they're scared of Everything. Anything
1: that might give you the idea that like you should push up against oppression is yeah. something that freaks people out, which is apparently why Miloš Forman was so attracted to it. Because Miloš Forman, the director of this movie, both of his parents were murdered in concentration camps in wow. World War II, and then growing up in Czechoslovakia, he grew up under communist rule, so he felt a real personal attachment to this story about like bucking up against. Authoritarianism. My introduction to this movie was literary in a way. The first, uh, my first exposure to One Fleur of the Cuckoo's Nest was Mad Magazine. They, because they would do these like really intense parodies. And my grandma's house was kind of like going back in time where she had all these old readers' digests and all these old mad magazines that like my dad and my uncles grew up with. So I remember first discovering Cuckoo's Nest through one of those 70s mad magazines where they had like done a little parody splash of the movie and the artwork I could clearly recognize was Jack Nicholson and I could even recognize Christopher Lloyd in it as well. And yet this is also one of my dad's favorite movies. So he showed it to me young. Uh and I credit this movie for the there's like a list of movies that I saw as a kid that um I do think kind of like opened my worldview up a little bit. And I think this movie uh was maybe the first movie to make me kind of understand the nuances of like mental health and, you know, made me realize that like there's not just like crazy people, you mm-hmm. know, that it's a really powerful moment in the movie when Jack Nicholson says like, you guys aren't crazy. You know,
2: oh, I love that part where he's like, you're no crazier than anybody walking yeah. down the street.
1: And I think this movie was a real eye opener for me as a little kid of just like, oh, there is like, differences in that. And I think exposing you to like the the nurse could be the bad guy in these situations. The institution is kind of the bad guy. You know, obviously I'm not getting all that when I'm a kid, but
0: Yeah, but she's she's also a victim of the institution too. You know, you feel I feel
1: bad for her. I think the nurse know. Ratchet conversation is a really interesting one. We mm-hmm. should say too that we are in Villains Month on Cinema Possessed podcast. Yeah. The whole month of September we're doing movies with interesting villains. And Nurse Ratchet is on the list of top 100 villains of all time in cinema. Mm. And I think in a lot of ways she deserves to be there. But like you said, she is a Looking complex- for
2: power so badly. She's
1: a nuanced character too. And I think, I think there's no doubt in my mind she abuses her power. Yes. And there's no doubt in my mind she is oppressing these people more than she's helping them. Mm-hmm. But I think that you're right when you say that she- is in some ways a victim too, and I think she thinks she's doing good. Of course. I don't think she's... I think
2: she thinks she's doing good, but not with Jack Nicholson. I think she's out for... Yes. revenge with him or wanting to put yeah, him in his place. she needs to make an example. Yeah, yeah she's, him. she's yeah. on a power trip. She him. is
1: on a power trip and and she's complacent in her power and uh, doesn't see how she's not actually improving these people's lives. She's a great so actress. She,
2: the, what's her name? Louise Fletcher. Louise Fletcher.
0: So yeah. I met, you, do you remember when I met Louise
1: I do. Fletcher? I don't remember okay, why. Yeah, I don't remember the, the story, details, Justin. but I do remember and you got I to met, meet And I met
0: Haskell Wexler too.
1: Oh <laughs> yeah, he's an interesting story in this as well.
0: So I used to. I don't. I don't think I was actually employed by them. But I used to work with Chicago International Film Festival when we were in Chicago. That's how I met our friend Kara. Um, basically, volunteering to watch kids' short films and judge them and <laughs> say which children deserved to be admitted <laughs> to the festival and which children were garbage filmmakers. Uh-huh. Uh, awful job. Really hard to do. But one of the things is they were like, Oh, okay. Like you film, uh, you do photography. Like, can you, we're having an event. Can you, can you film the event? So one of the events was honoring, uh, Haskell Wexler. Mm -hmm. And so I filmed the event, filmed him, the interview. I, I had a friend with me, her name was Allison and she was helping me on camera. And Haskell Wexler liked her a lot and was giving her a lot of attention and not paying a damn shit to me. So that was, that was fun. But then uh, we moved to L.A. and they called me years later and they were like, hey, we want to do a retrospective on Louise Fletcher. Like, can you go to her house and interview her? Do you remember and where she so- lived? No, it was a very kooky house and mm-hmm. had a lot of character and personality and um yeah it was just me i think it was just me and the person interviewing her mm. i was i don't think i was asking her questions i was mm. just the turning on? the camera on yeah. but i don't remember any stories other than she was just cute and fun <laughs> and very chatty she's yeah. just constantly telling me stories and i'm pretty sure i'm sure she talked some shit about robert altman because she was Still a little sore about her experiences on that. I don't know if you heard, but she was supposed Robert Altman wanted her for Nashville. They had worked together on another movie, I think. But either way, on Nashville, she's supposed to play maybe the Lily Tomlin character. Okay. And Bob Altman wrote the part based on her own personal story with her parents who are both deaf Mm -hmm. and out of nowhere canned Uh her hired Lily Tomlin and kept the details of, of Louise Fletcher's life, the same. And then apparently at the Oscars, the 1976 Oscars, where she takes her award for best actress, she's on stage and she's doing a sign language for her parents. And she said, she looked down in the front row and there was Bob (gasps) Altman, who was also nominated for Nashville. And he was mimicking her to mock her in the front row. And apparently, Damn, like, he shit. claims that he was... This was all in that book, Easy Rider, Raging Bull.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, Peter Biskin?
0: Yeah. And so he says, apparently, Bob Altman felt like uh, he was bitter because Louise Fletcher stopped talking to him after he took the part away from her. Wow. So, And Lily Tomlin was nominated for Best Supporting Actress, so... You know, it's like that. She could have had a big year that year. She could have been best supporting actress in Nashville. She could have been, uh, and best actress for One Flew Over
1: the Cougar's Nest. But she's amazing in this movie. And she died in 2022. I know. Sad.
2: Did you see who else was offered this role? Well, yeah,
1: a lot of people were offered and they turned it down because this was kind of like right at the height of the women's, you know, movement. And uh, the, the role itself, especially in the novel was so particularly like evil yeah th- to the point where people deemed it a, a misogynistic caricature mm. and so she was kind of the only one that um would even accept the part but they well, went I thought out-
2: interesting they went out to ellen burston mm-hmm. for our exorcist connection and then also shelly duvall as well oh wow and shelly yes I didn't know about and that. that she was like one of the i think like there's no way that's so wrong for shelly duvall I've read a whole thing about it.
0: No, 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 no. I mean, like, it's wrong casting. Oh, oh wrong choice. I yes, thought you yeah. meant
1: wrong information. Well, that could have been interesting casting, because what's interesting about uh, the character is that she's- tec- Ellen
2: Burson, I could see. I could That's see Ellen Burson note. for sure.
1: Yeah. She's technically kind of an angelic personality. You know, she's kind of acting like she's sweet, but she has this sort of sinister quality about Of course, her. which I love
0: about Louise Fletcher's performance. Yes. I think there's an angelic quality to what she does, but- she does have something Shelley doesn't have, which is like when she wants to, she looks frightening. Yes, for sure, she yeah. looks very frightening. Yeah,
1: Justin, how about you? When did you first watch this movie? I think it was
0: definitely like a high school assignment. It was a combination of reading the book in class and watching the movie afterwards.
2: Yeah, maybe that's what it was for me, too, actually. I don't think I ever now.
0: read the book.
1: Did you like the movie when you saw it the first time?
0: I think it was a little ahead of my my time. I think in, in high school, I wasn't quite ready for uh, 1970s movies <laughs> uh-huh. like this. You know, if I, probably knowing myself then, I would have found it a little, a little bit boring, there was no martial arts action sequences, no <laughs> yeah. Jackie Chan. So I just didn't care, you know, mm-hmm. but I did reread the book this week, picked it up. For oh, a library, you did. Got through all 270 pages in three days.
1: Nice. and I'm I got, glad you did that because I'm interested to talk about the differences.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, as you know, sometimes, sometimes you, you, we both have strong opinions about the way that fans of the books react to the movie or what they perceive to be an unfaithful adaptation Mm -hmm. or reproduction of the original source material. And I think in some cases it's not valid. In some cases it is valid. Overall, the idea that a movie can exist separate from the book as a completely different Mm -hmm. medium, a different art form meant to be consumed differently, there's no way they could possibly capture all... Of the nuance of the book, but there's so many famous authors, you know, uh, Stephen King comes to mind with, with the shining and how he Mm -hmm. felt about the adaptation of that, where I got to admit, like I can watch the shining and, and appreciate it for the movie that Stanley Kubrick wanted to make. But then I can also read the book, the shining and be like, damn, there's so much in here. That's not in the movie. Right. But books can do things that movies can't do. And one of the things that this book does really freaking well that I sorely miss in the movie is the whole book is in the POV of big chief. It's his inner thought. Oh, and inner
2: interesting. And so not
0: only to see the whole story through his perspective, but to then get the flip that he actually can speak and hear. And he's not uh, deaf and dumb as, as they say in the movie, um, it was so much more powerful and more effective when you read that than than in the movie to me. So, I, again, it's like I'm going to talk about a couple things I think the book does better. But I am, I think, able to be objective and separate the two. Yeah. But Ken, Ken Kessy is another one who
1: says he did not like the movie adaptation. Oh, yeah. He, he kind of walked from the movie before it even got made. Who's
2: Ken Kessie? The author. Oh, got it. Um, wait, 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 really quickly. So the book, it's completely f- through the chief's point of view, but you still think that he's deaf and dumb? Because at the it's all of the book? his
0: inner thoughts. His, so he's observing everything and he's silent. He doesn't talk because people have kind of treated him that way. So uh-huh. by treating him like he's a big, dumb Indian, you know, is what yeah. they say. He kind of embraced that role and then used it to his advantage to overhear conversations in the mental hospital that people would have never said. In front of him, if they knew that he could speak, so he's a witness to everything that happens, and he can hear things and see things. So you, as
2: the reader, know that he's not deaf.
0: You get it gets revealed later, but again, you're not hearing him talk; you're reading his inner thoughts. So you don't know that he he doesn't reveal he to hearing you, those things. He doesn't reveal the right way that he can talk.
1: You know, in my research of it, it, it felt to me like this would be an interesting maybe not companion piece, but comparison piece to Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Because from what I could gather is the book of One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest is written sort of similarly in that it's narration-based. And Chief is a schizophrenic, and he's also heavily medicated throughout the book. And so he sees hallucinations, and it's like a far trippier telling of the story of Cuckoo's Nest than what the movie is, which is a very sort of grounded, realistic, almost documentary approach to it. Whereas in the book, he sees a much more surreal version of the hospital, and Nurse Ratchet is a much more like demonic figure, almost literally, like with horns and things like that. And uh, to me, it felt like, oh, that's kind of, it sounds a little bit similar to Fear and Loathing. And that felt like, had they been more faithful to the novel, it may have, the movie may have felt a little bit more like Fear and loathing in Las Vegas, the movie. Would you, what do you think? Could be. I
0: think those are definitely elements of the book. Like there are moments where things get surreal and then it's a little hard as a reader to understand what's going on because it transitions from a very coherent inner monologue to one of utter psychedelic nonsense. Right. But it doesn't happen as much as you think. And I think that Chief is a very grounded character who. Uh, is more lucid than he is out of his mm-hmm. mind. And often those moments play with thematic elements. So I, when I read the more surreal stuff, I was like, oh, okay, how does this relate to sort of the theme of the book? But it's not so intense and so pervasive that you can't relate to Chief as a character. He's pretty mm-hmm, smart. Right? He's pretty intelligent, coherent for the most part, you know, except yeah. a few Surreal moments, but Mm -hmm. I think, you know, I heard Milos Forman talk about it and he was like, oh, it would be so crazy to tell the story from the POV of... Chief, because it works in literature, but it doesn't work in film, because then you have demons and horns and blood and wires and all this crazy stuff.
1: And just constant narration. Yeah. Seems like if you were to be in the perspective of Chief, you would be required to have the narration. Otherwise, he's not speaking. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I I like this version of the movie. I think I would be very
1: curious.
2: Well, I think that the emotion of that plays really well in the movie. Me too. I love the reveal
1: that he can speak
2: yeah i the, the reveal hit me me
1: too. I mean, I find that moment to be beautiful, and I think it works because you think that he is deaf and dumb um now obviously it's you know it's they're kind of completely telling the story in a different way with the film, and so you know there's pros and cons, and maybe the version of the movie that they make where they do focus on chief's character and we are in his head with the narration and stuff could work beautifully uh but it doesn't take away that this version of the movie also works beautifully. And I sort of understand why they would want to do it. I think it's this the change was probably done when they first turned it into a play. Kirk Douglas fell in love with the book, and he was the one who sort of spearheaded turning it into a play. And he took it to Broadway and he played the role of R.P. McMurphy with Gene Wilder. And you
2: know, Danny DeVito was in the Broadway. And production. Danny DeVito
1: was in the original production too. And then he immediately tried to start making it into a movie, but um People didn't really want to make it into a movie at that time. And I don't think the play itself did particularly well, even though it was on Broadway and he was a big name. And so people would see it because of him. I don't think it was necessarily like reviewed particularly well. Mm-hmm. And so he could not get it turned into a movie. And eventually he kind of just aged out of the role. Yeah. Did
0: you hear about his contact with Milosh Foreman? In Czechoslovakia. Right, yeah.
1: So he had decided he wanted Milos Forman to direct it. At this point, Milos Forman had done The Fireman's Ball, which is a great movie. I guess they corresponded a little bit and he was like, I'm going to send you the book. And he did, but it got stopped in customs basically and never made it to Milos Forman. Which is
0: crazy because in this day and age, it's like if, if you didn't, if you sent a book to somebody and you didn't hear back for seven years, you would think that yeah. you would like reach out, Hey, did you get that book that sent <laughs> yeah. I sent you? Haven't heard from you in a while. Neither
1: one of them followed up about it, and so one just yeah. thought the other didn't like it, and the other one thought the other didn't send it, basically, uh, yeah. and so it just sort of languished, and then um, Kirk Douglas's son, Michael Douglas, of Basic Instinct, Fatal Attraction, we all know him and love him as an actor, uh, he was young, hot, and by hot I mean just hot looking, but not hot as an actor, and so he was <laughs> like, I guess I should try producing. And so as one of his first producing attempts, he went and asked his dad, like, hey, can, you know, you haven't been able to get this movie off the ground. Can I, like, give it a shot? He partnered up with this record company and found another producer, and they were able to find um, financing. But at that point in time, like I said, Kirk Douglas had aged out, so they had to find uh, a new actor to do it, and they eventually found Old Nicholson. Though.
2: Well, I saw they were trying to get like Marlon Brando and stuff to play the role. So mm-hmm. they were trying to go for like big famous, famous. They initially went out.
0: Brando to... wouldn't even read the script. Mm-hmm.
2: Really? <laughs> yeah.
1: They went out to Gene Hackman. Uh, well, he turned it down. What I got
2: excited about when
0: I read the backstory was that Hal Ashby was gunning for directing this movie. And I'm like, God, what would the Hal Ashby mm-hmm. version of this movie look what, like? What What is he yeah, directed?
1: He, he did Harold and Maude. Uh, he did The Last Detail.
0: Yeah, so he formed this relationship with Jack Nicholson and, and wanted to, like, really ride on his coattails and make Hell them yeah. kind of a thing, like a team. And so apparently he just didn't really get along that well with the producers. Not Michael Douglas, but the other guy. I guess he just didn't trust him or something. There, w- there was just some bad blood with them uh, or something. But fun to o- imagine with movies alternate versions with the directors yeah. that, that mm-hmm. never worked out. And I think the Hal Ashby version would
1: be pretty cool. It would probably be just as good, honestly. Did
0: you read about the author's sort of early days writing the novel and his uh, ex- experiences with LSD?
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> he did, like, the more I read about him, the more I was like, he is very much like a Hunter S. Thompson kind of character. Yeah.
0: Well, what I what I like about it is, like, he's, he's like, working at this um, hospital at night and during the day, he's participating in this CIA little little known CIA program called MK Ultra. Mm-hmm. Basically, CIA doing this, these illegal experiments on college kids because they're too God. chicken shit to try this stuff themselves. Paying them seventy five bucks a day to take LSD and and uh, other drugs, trying to develop how they could use these things in like military interrogations, Mm -hmm. basically to either brainwash people or force confessions or do psychological torture. (laughs) But so these college kids who are like free drugs or, or like, you know, want to want to free (laughs) LSD sign up for it. So this kid from Oregon who, you know, moved to Menlo park near Stanford is, is getting paid 75 bucks during the day to, to drop LSD. He's like 24 years old. He's a lit student. And at night, he's working the night shift at this hospital, seeing all this crazy stuff, uh, like the 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 cr- crazy, like the fucked up shit the hospitals doing. Yeah, seeing the how patients, the patients are being treated. Seeing how the patients are being treated, seeing electric shock therapy, and still recovering from his LSD during the day, and writing the and getting the idea for the book and writing the novel. Yeah, which is such an interesting combination of experiences he had that that led to this amazing book
1: and he went on to be a big advocate for drug use in general and hallucinogens and lsd uh, kind of became like his his thing he wasn't really involved with the making of this movie because he didn't approve of the way they were switching the point of view and and changing it but yeah that's common you know like uh you already mentioned stephen king you know mm-hmm. majority of the best Stephen King adaptations don't involve King. And a lot, you know, he considers Shining... To be his least favorite adaptation, and Dreamcatcher, so he crazy. loves that adaptation. Crazy. I, don't know. I think he <laughs> so would- Sometimes I don't the authors him. don't, you know, they're so attached to their. Dreamcatcher,
2: <laughs> though, that you cannot say that. <laughs> I don't
1: blame him
0: for saying that about Shining. I think he's out of his mind. He was out of his mind when he wrote yes. Dreamcatcher, <laughs> yeah. so he
1: is. Well, you don't think Duddits is a classic literary character? Crazy. He's long gone. Well, we just had this conversation a few weeks ago when we were talking about The Exorcist about William Peter Blatty and like yeah. his version of the, of the movie versus William Friedkin's and how, you know, what you got in 1973 was Friedkin's version. And then when they re-released it, it's kind of Blatty's version. And we have our critiques about Blatty's version because it's a little bit too on the nose about things. It's
2: such just two such different art forms yes. as well. Honestly, that's yeah. why I think. And it doesn't take one away from the other. It's true. And I think that uh, books being adapted for movies can work, but if they work honestly better for many. Series Mm -hmm. because you can get way more of the like. I've been disappointed before in books to movies because it's like, oh, you just have such a relationship to this book and there's so there's just there's no way you can get all of those things out in a movie, right. So you kind of just have to view them as two separate things. yeah, and if you can't, then make it into a mini. Well, <laughs> yeah like
0: I think a writer has every right to make it known. I don't like the movie sure. You know? It's almost like par for the course at this point. Yeah. What mm-hmm. else would you expect from them? They're so close to it. And again, it's it's doing something that the movie physically cannot do. Yeah. And so I don't blame them for thinking that. But I do think if you if you release a book, um, if you release the rights of the book to a production company or to Hollywood to make a movie, you got to expect that you're not going to like it. So you're not really like adding anything new to the conversation with that. But. That being said, when you read a book, something happens that just does not happen when you watch the movie and yeah. that's you using your own imagination mm-hmm. to envision this whole world of what the characters sound like and what the locations look like you're doing all the imagination and all the heavy lifting right. that the movie is doing for you so you know that's it's hard to compete with that mm-hmm. you're setting the movie up for failure if you're if you're holding it up to the to the standards of the book
1: well let's take a quick break and we will come right back to get Welcome back to Cinema Possessed, and we are talking One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, This movie opens with a great score by Jack Nietzsche. We talked about Jack Nietzsche a little bit on the Exorcist Mm -hmm. episode. He did... um, a lot of the additional music for that movie. He was a very experimental composer. He would use stuff like wine glasses, like rubbing his finger around on wine glasses to create noises. You can hear in this song, uh, there's like tribal drums with a singing saw leading it. And it's really sort of eerie and odd and kooky, but also beautiful. The singing saw was performed actually by a guy named Robert Armstrong, who was a cartoonist who worked with like R. Crumb. Uh, And he actually uh, created the term couch potato. Oh, really? Because that was one of his comics was Ah. these potatoes that would lounge around watching TV. And he made shirts out of them and stuff. And Jack Nietzsche would go on to win uh, the Academy Award for Officer and a Gentleman score. But he also did Cruising, The Exorcist, like we said. He did Hardcore, Stand By Me, Cutter's Way. He's a really interesting guy. And there's a great documentary about him on the... 4k of uh, hardcore. So if you get the hardcore 4k, there's a good, there's a 4k hardcore mm-hmm. Paul Schrader Wow, has interviews with William Friedkin, Milos Forman, Paul Schrader. They're all on there talking about uh, working with him. Very, very cool. Interesting guy. The uh, the opening scene where it's like medication time, you kind of get to meet all the patients. This is a pretty fun scene. We get to meet Danny DeVito, who plays Martini.
2: I would not have known that was Danny DeVito. I mean, maybe very later young, on in the movie. Very young DeVito. But when Jack pointed it out, I was like, what?
1: Mm-hmm. Shook me. Danny DeVito's character is almost like childlike naivety, you know? Like he just sort of always smiling, doesn't really understand anything, uh, doesn't get the rules when they're playing cards and stuff like that. Uh, we get also a very, very young Brad Dourif who plays Billy who has a stutter. So oh, handsome. Oh. oh my God. The hair is perfect too. Just a perfect coiffed hair. Billy is so about his mom. You know, his whole character seems sort mm-hmm. of driven by the fear of what his mother, There's sort of like an, yeah, an Oedipal thing going on with him. Yeah. There's this guy named Banchini who is always tired. Like that's his thing. He's always like, I'm tired and then there's Harding who is a guy who's like always talking about his relationship with his wife and there seems to be implications that he might be gay but is is suppressing that Christopher Lloyd is kind of like uh, anger incarnate you know he's always sort of on the verge of exploding he's very aggressive
2: all you ever talk about is your damn wife Harding Christopher Lloyd is so good in this movie He's <laughs> awesome
1: And then I think one of my favorite characters is Cheswick, the guy who's, he's a little bit of a people pleaser, but he gets on people's nerves, especially Harding. You know, there's that scene where he, hey, do me a favor, stay off my side. He's like, but I'm only trying to help. I'm just trying to help. (laughs) I just want to help. I just only wanted to help you. (laughs) And then we also get the Hills Have Eyes guy. I forget that he's in this movie. Michael Berryman is his name. And then we get to meet our main character, R.P. McMurphy, Jack Nicholson. He arrives and he's- there to be evaluated. Essentially, he has claimed insanity to get out of going to prison for statutory rape. She was 15 going on 35, Doc. Uh, So he's a creep. He's definitely a creep. What can you tell me about uh,
2: why you've been sent over here? Well, uh, I don't know. What's it say there? Mind if I smoke? No, go right ahead. Well, it, um, says several things here. It said you've been belligerent, talked when unauthorized, been resentful in the attitude toward work in general, that you're lazy.
0: Chewing gum in class?
2: <laughs> well, the real reason that you've been sent over here is because they wanted you to be evaluated. Yeah. to determine whether or not you're mentally ill. This mm-hmm. is the real reason. Why do you think they might think that? Well, as near as I can figure
0: out, it's because I uh, uh, fight and fuck too much. In I mean, the I...
2: penitentiary?
0: No, no, no. You mean why, th- wait Why a minute, wait did a you get
2: sent over here from the work farm?
0: Oh. Oh, yeah. Oh,
1: uh, well, I really don't know, Doc. I love that in this sequence, he's playing it really cool. Like, he's clearly trying to kind of convince Dr. Spivey that he's not crazy, even though he's gotten himself in there by claiming insanity, which I got to say, I didn't understand that as a kid. You know, um, in my mind, I thought that he had been legally deemed Insane. And that's why he was there, which again, kind of opened up my perspective of like, but he seems so normal, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's like, as a kid, I was like, that's really interesting how somebody can seem so normal, but be like legally deemed insane. Maybe there's something wrong with that. Um, But I wasn't actually catching the idea that he was faking it to, to get in there. This is a good scene, though, like between him and Dr. Spivey. This is the real, uh, this guy who plays the doctor here was the real head of this hospital. So they actually shot this movie in a working hospital in Oregon. so crazy. This guy was actually pretty fucking cool, I thought. His name was Dr. Dean Brooks. He was a very progressive doctor. The book itself was criticized by the psychiatric community because they felt like it was shedding a bad light on the world of institutions and and, and psychiatric help. And so it was very, very difficult for them to find a hospital that would actually let them film this movie there. But they found this guy and he said, I will allow you to shoot this movie here, but you must use the patients to help you make this movie. If it's behind the camera in front of the camera, my only stipulation is they cannot play patients. If you want to have them act a role, they can be any other role than a patient because they are patients in real life. And I want this to be therapeutic for them. Mm-hmm. And um, some really beautiful stories about the making of this. Milos Forman talked about one guy who said when they first got there, he couldn't put three sentences together. And by the end of the production, he was actually like manning a whole production department and was telling people what to do. And the Dr. Brooks said that by the end of it, he was like, this was by far the best therapy these patients could have gotten was mm-hmm. being a part of this uh, yeah. film production. They got paid. To- and, and they got paid. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Yeah. And a lot of the crew members had no clue what any of these people were in there for. They just kind of had to like start working alongside them. And they said there was one guy that was working in the lighting department who was, his job was to like spread deal with kerosene or something like that. And they later found out that he was in there for like multiple counts of arsenic. <laughs> yeah but they were like, he just enjoyed his job. He loved working with, (laughs) um, but I thought that was kind of, I thought that was pretty cool. And so they ended up, uh, Milo's Forman and Jack Nicholson took a liking to this Dr. Brooks guy and they both decided that that he should play the actual Dr. here yeah. in this opening scene. And he's good. This whole sequence good. was basically they said it was like a two-take situation where they just kind of set up two cameras and yeah. had him and what Jack. What a dream. Could you imagine
0: you're like running a clinic and then you have a Hollywood not only a Hollywood film shoot, but you get to star opposite Jack yeah. Nicholson God. and do a bunch of really good mm-hmm. things for your for your patience. which is the
1: way awesome. to do it. If you're if you're mm-hmm. making if you're a filmmaker making a movie in a uh, that that might be deemed critical of a certain circle, but you got a film in that circle, just start giving people parts. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. If you make them a star, they will allow you to do it. Yeah, it's not you're <laughs> close uh, we're getting sticky uh, territory. Do it, there. do it. Do it because it's
0: good for the community. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think also Melish Foreman had the actors all. Of Pick one patient that they would then uh, inspire them mm-hmm. for their performance. Observe
1: them. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, and, and they were sl- actors were
1: sleeping there. Yeah. They, they, they it were. It seemed like everybody took this extremely seriously. They also
2: thing. had Jack Nicholson and Louise Fletcher go and watch yeah. actual um, shock therapy, shock yeah. therapy which, whoo.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you hear that the cast was out in the streets of Oregon? buying little dime bags of weed from people in the streets. And it was like causing an embarrassment to the production company and, wow. and, <laughs> I didn't and a liability. That. So the, they, this was the
1: seventies. Pro- you got to remember the
0: producers had a production assistant go and buy a giant, giant bag of weed and then distribute them to the actors oh, yeah. at street prices. That's hilarious. <laughs> hey, you- so that they didn't have to keep going out. And
1: uh, when your producers on the movie are Michael Douglas and uh, the head of a record company, they're going to mm-hmm. do stuff like That's buy true. the cast weed to make it to yeah. make things go smoothly. I'm um, sure
0: weed wasn't the only thing Jack Nicholson was considering. Sure, inside.
1: sure. <laughs> Jack ends up going out and meeting everybody he meets. Chief. Goddamn, Chief, you're about as big as a damn mountain. Chief is played by Will Sampson. Will oh, Sampson. So good. Actually six foot seven. So he's as huge as he seems in the movie. He had never acted before this. He's a painter. Wow! Doesn't
0: call himself an actor. He, he's a first and last. I'm a painter.
1: Mm-hmm. His paintings are in the Smithsonian. What? Mm-hmm. And I think they were Jesus. even at the time. Uh, he was also a rodeo performer. Mm-hmm. Um, he was in
0: Poltergeist too.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, he went on to be in a couple of different in a couple to different movies actor. after this. Yeah, uh, he also played tin bears in the Outlaw Josie Wales. Yeah, he's awesome. I love him.
0: My favorite moment. My favorite mm-hmm. moment with him in the whole movie is when Jack Nicholson comes down from his first shock therapy. Me too, to me too.
1: Like and he winks out at him. Of his,
0: yeah, and, and that and little. He, sm- and you see Chief uh, is holding the broom and they add a sound effect of him like squeezing the broom. Yeah. Like he's uh, stressed and then when Nicholson it like winks at him first, mm-hmm. it's so touching. Oh my gosh,
2: it's my favorite scene in the whole movie.
1: Uh, most of these therapy scenes, these sort of group therapy scenes were improvised. Apparently, they were initially conceived to just allow the actors to sort of get into character and develop backstory. Mm-hmm. But then Milos Forman just kind of started filming them. The cinematographer, like Justin said, was Haskell Wexler. Did you see that he got booted off the movie midway through? I did, yeah.
0: They uh, they butted heads, yeah. apparently. They, big they're time. Just, they had different different styles of, of how to work.
1: Milos was big into improvisation not only with actors, but I think just in general with the, what, what was going to happen in the scene, what the camera was going to do, and that really didn't fly with Haskell Wexler. I think there was also, from what I can gather too, this was basically Milos Forman's first American film, and I think only like his third movie. Haskell Wexler had been doing it for forever. He was a renowned DP at this point. And so I think yeah. there was a little bit of a sense of like, who's this fucking kid? coming in here telling me how to do it i'm telling him this is how it works and he's saying i don't care i want to do it my way and um, michael douglas said it was one of the hardest things he's ever had to do was go up to an academy award-winning director of photography and tell him it's either you or the director and we ain't firing the director
0: which i'm sorry i'm sorry to any uh, of the hundreds of cinematographers that are listening to this podcast (laughs) but i couldn't agree more i'm so without it's because it's not that one role is more important than the other. Right. It's that the role of the director requires that you mm-hmm. do what they say. I'm sorry. Yeah. It is a collaboration. You do need to work together. And sometimes that means compromise. But at the end of the day, when the director hears you out and understands what it is that you want to do and says, no, that that that's not what I want. Yeah. you got to kind of For sure. play ball. But
2: you see, the only thing I can really speculate on, Nurse Ratchet, is the very existence of my life with or without my wife. Hardy, why don't you knock off the bullshit and get to the point? This is the point. This is the point, Taper. It's not bullshit. I'm not just talking about my wife, I'm talking about my life. I can't seem to get that through to you. I'm not just talking about one person, I'm talking about everybody. I'm talking about form, I'm talking about content, I'm talking
1: about interrelationships, I'm talking about God, the devil, hell, heaven. Do you understand?
2: Finally! (laughs) Yeah, Hardy, you're so fucking dumb, I can't believe it. Oh! (laughs) Oh! It makes me feel very peculiar, very peculiar when you throw in something like that.
1: What does that peculiar. mean? Peculiar, peculiar,
2: peculiar, Harding. Peculiar? Peculiar, Harding. Peculiar. peculiar. i am to tell you guys peculiar. something. Peculiar. You just
1: don't want to learn anything. You just don't want to listen to anybody. <laughs> he's peculiar. got intelligence. Wait a
2: minute. You've never heard the word peculiar? Mm-hmm.
1: So the actor who plays Harding, William Redfield, love him in this movie. I think he's so great in it, too. I love that he's constantly fluctuating between being antagonistic towards the group to also then will occasionally be like, invested and Mm -hmm. into it and behind it, Mm -hmm. it makes them really endearing. They had an onset doctor who was kind of watching all of them and checking in on them all as they were going throughout this process. And the onset doctor, while on set, discovered that William Redfield had leukemia. (gasps) So he was diagnosed while on, literally on set of this movie. And he died a year later.
2: Oh my God. Uh, This was
1: essentially like his last feature. Very, very sad because he's amazing in the movie.
0: If you found out you had leukemia in the middle of a project and you had six months to live. No, you had one year to live, but six months of that would be taken up on the film shoot. Would you continue shooting or would you spend the year in a different way? You would shoot. I would
1: continue doing it. I think it depends on, you know, how you see yourself and what you're, you know, I think a lot of people, I was born to be an actor. You know, and so if he was one of those kinds of people, then he might very well be like, this is, this is, especially if I'm going to die, I'm going to leave my legacy with this movie.
2: Yeah, what a great movie to do
1: And they all seemed pretty aware they were making a great movie.
2: God, that would be so exciting to be like, this is like going to be a good movie. And they could all recognize that Jack
1: Nicholson they, was iconic. So I think, think they knew they, knew they were going to win five Oscars on this thing? You
2: can't know that, but I mean, I think...
1: Well, I don't, that's a whole other level, though. That's like a legendary... Yeah. yeah, the Oscars, who knows? But the documentary that I watched, they were on set being filmed in their costumes and multiple of these actors were like, I think we're making something really special here and I'm very excited to see the film. You know, so yeah. they
2: they at the very least I mean, we hear the opposite of that so many times though too, is like they think they're making a great movie and then it's mm-hmm. like the biggest piece of shit ever. So yeah. you can't necessarily ever trust Well, a that. lot of times you just don't know. Yeah, you know, like,
0: I think you don't know. I think you you in you have, hindsight's twenty twenty, and and you know people go on the record and say I you know they think that they're doing something good, and then when it comes to fruition, yeah, right. you hear it that all like the time. Confirmation honestly. bias, but
1: the actor who played Cheswick is uh, Sidney Lassic. Right, uh, interesting thing about him is he got so invested in the role that he started to have mood swings oh, and would no. have these little outbursts during filming. And there was one particular sequence where he freaked out and didn't stop freaking out. And they cut camera and he continued to freak out. And they actually had to bring in doctors to <gasps> restrain him. And they were kind of like, we need to keep an eye on Sydney because he seems to have maybe <laughs> uh, taken this a little head. too far. He's going actually kind of berserk. Uh, we get an awesome basketball sequence. The
2: basketball scenes are my other favorite scenes in the movie. I love all the
1: game sequences. The yeah. basketball scene, the poker game scene. Hit me. Hit me. He's like, I'm not going to hit when he When Danny DeVito breaks Aren't the he? cigarette to try to turn a dime into uh, two nickels. It's so he, funny. <laughs> yeah. This is nothing. <laughs> the nudie cards that Jack Nicholson has. It feels mm-hmm. like such a perfect representation mm-hmm. of him because he's a total gambler. He's always looking to gamble on something. He's always looking to play games. So the fact that they are cards in and of themselves feel significant to that. The fact that they have nude women on them mm-hmm. plays into his sort of skeezy nature. Mm-hmm. But also the sort of, um, he's kind of a magician in this movie too. He's, he's got a magical power to him that he can sway people and manipulate people. And so to me, that's what cards often represent as well. Maybe
0: too, if he was a card, he'd be the
1: Joker. Mm, uh, a little foreshadowing uh, for uh, the future. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and without this movie, we would not have the Jack Nicholson that we know today. I feel like this movie defined the Jack Nicholson style
2: Yeah, we all know. Mm-hmm. I also, yeah. I mentioned to Jack, I can't remember what scene it was in, but I was like Jack, he's giving Leo vibes, yes. and you were like, "Oh my gosh!" I was just thinking that totally. too.
1: It was the, it's the scene right before they're going into shock treatment when he gives Chief the juicy fruit. He, the way he's talking to him when, when he's like. God damn Chief, you got him all fooled. Like he just has it such felt a Leo so Leonardo
2: DiCaprio Leo and Once Upon yeah. a Time in Hollywood
1: vibe uh-huh. too major. And I think Leo has yeah. probably gone on the record before as saying that Jack Nicholson is a big influence on this Of course. His, he's his like his one of the
2: style. top ones for sure.
0: Did you ever feel that any scene that was that could be categorized as a fun and game scene mm-hmm. was corny?
1: Hmm. No, I don't think so. I don't think so either. Did you? I got
0: some, I felt corniness at times. I don't think it ever overwhelmed me or made me feel like the movie as a whole was corny, but I did. The basketball
1: scene? Did you think it was corny?
0: No, the basketball scene where Chief is going from end to end and slam dunking was hilarious. And he like (laughs) pushes
2: the ball out of the basket.
0: That was. Unbelievable. That's like a stand and, up in your seat moment. And yeah. You're just yeah. like, get it, Chief. The, I don't think that was in the book. That took me by surprise, and that was hilarious. But mm-hmm. there's just a few other scenes, especially set to the music that they chose. Yeah, like, the music did looks, look get a little corny. corny. I agree. The, you know, <laughs> people, actors, pretending to be mentally ill, walking around town, you know, for the first time, and, and the goofy music playing, and they're going to the boat. Uh, I just felt like a couple moments I was like, man, this read differently. And then when I saw it, I was like, this is a little corny to me. Not
2: saying it's yeah, bad. Sure.
0: It's not a problem. It just. I think I know what you're talking about because hard. there That's was a the mo-
2: That Well, I kind of forgot about the whole breaking out of the, yeah. the, mm-hmm. the institution. Th- that was. The part that That I can say had some corniness. That's the
1: sequence that when it happened, I did think to myself, this movie won Best Picture (laughs) because it starts to, there's another movie that's very similar to this that's in the 80s uh, starring Michael Keaton and actually also has Christopher Lloyd called The Dream Team. And it's like a comedy basically taking the premise of that breakout sequence in Cuckoo's Nest where it's a group of. Inmates in a mental institution who all break out and go have a night on the town, and it's called The Dream Team. Again, was another one of my dad's favorite movies that he showed me that is essentially like a companion piece to Cuckoo's Nest. That sequence really feels like an 80s romp. And I I gotta be honest it feels out of place
0: for more than one reason and Mm -hmm. I don't want to keep doing this But in the book (laughs) the way that this scene actually happens. is it's a long build It doesn't happen right away and it's not a breakout. McMurphy is trying to do another Vote thing right like Mm. who wants to go on a fishing trip? And so it's just another struggle he has with nurse nurse ratchet and another struggle he has with the patients Where he has to earn that and really convince people to sign up and do it and and then another aspect in the book is that there is a psychologist who's often with nurse ratchet that I imagine maybe is that, um,
2: the younger uh, woman, uh, nurse. no,
0: the guy, uh, Dean Brooks, you know, Dr. Spidey. Oh yeah, yeah. And in the book, Jack Nicholson went to college with this guy, went to school, went to high school. And so they have this like, old history together and so jack nicholson leverages that rp mcmurphy leverages that to sometimes get his way and pit them against each other mm-hmm. and then when they get to the boat they have this huge confrontation with the sailor who is like i'm not taking all these guys out on the boat this is like a big liability where are your waivers and uh it just plays out in a very yeah. different way that i thought was a little bit more dramatically interesting and mm-hmm. in uh, so I was, again, I was shocked when I saw this both tonally felt off, like it is. the goofy, the cuckoo-ness of It's everything. a little
1: quirky yeah, in a way that the rest of the movie, and apparently yeah. Milos Forman did not like the sequence. He didn't want to do it. Oh, He sort of begrudgingly shot. Why shocked did he do me. it then? Just because it was like, I think everybody else liked it. Like, I think the producers <clears throat> really liked it. It was a part of the book that people enjoyed, I think. And so, but he, according to Milos, he never wanted to leave the asylum. He, he it also
0: takes a little bit away from me from the final fuck up uh-huh. that they all do with the big party and right. the, yeah. the, the surgery break into the, into, this, true, in, yeah. into the hospital. It's like they've already done something so horrible yeah. technically so early on in the movie that it just clashes a little bit for me. I do end.
1: like the sequence, but I get it too. Like I have the same feeling. I think for me, the, the stuff that makes the sequence is like, that moment that you were talking about where they have the confrontation with the sailor, the guy whose boat it is, when he says, We're from the mental institution. And then he goes, Like, this is Dr. Martini. And this is stuck And you get a like a close-up of all of yeah, them. Yeah, the famous getting- doctor. Yeah. <laughs> and then every one of them kind of for this like close-up gets to sort of turn to camera and be like, Yes, that is me. I am this doctor. And it's really <laughs> endearing and sweet. And for me, it's like makes the sequence. Yeah. But for the most part, I agree. Like, even the fact that he escapes. But then decides to then hijack the bus rather than like
0: actually yeah. escape. It's too feels big of kind a thing of, too early on yeah. as well. Yeah. Well, it
2: feels like this that's actually the thing that would have led to Nurse Ratchet mm-hmm. lobotomizing his ass. Right. Like Yeah. Which by the way, okay, so you brought up the voting thing. Yeah, let's go to that. Let's go to that because I feel like this is when Nurse Ratchet feels cruel.
1: Yes, I agree.
2: And that that's when like I feel like I – because actually when we were first watching it, the first part of the movie, I was like, hmm, did the, the you know, the Ryan Murphy ratchet, like all that stuff, was that just – they just decided to go a totally different way with the character? Because I didn't remember, like, is she – What do she you does, mean?
0: What's Ryan Murphy ratchet?
2: He made a television show called Ratchet. With Sarah That's Paulson. With Sarah Paulson. That's what I mentioned in the show I auditioned for. So
1: there's um, like an FX series all about Nurse Ratchet, but I think it's a prequel I think it's to a this. Netflix
2: series, actually. Oh. Um, but it's, yeah, it's like a prequel, but and it's, it's all about her, you know. It's like a horror show. It's like an American Horror Story type feeling. But- I was thinking in the beginning of the movie I was like oh did he just like make up this other yeah. version of her for this show because I wasn't really seeing what was so awful about her at first but then when they, like you can kind of see she's like who the fuck is this guy with Jack Nicholson's character yeah she
1: wants him to take the medicine and he doesn't want to take it and she says well if Mr. McMurphy doesn't want to take his medication orally I'm sure we can arrange some other way and I to me I'm kind of like it. oh that's that kind of funny that that's kind of no, funny snarky like, yeah. it's like you don't you don't not
2: like her at that point mm-hmm. and he comes out and, and he makes wrong. that I bet. He wrong. goes. He goes. I bet
1: wrong. in one week I'll put a bug so far up her ass she won't know whether to shit or wind her wristwatch.
2: Yeah, and so you're kind of like on her side a little. At least I was a little bit at that point. I'm but not then, on her
1: side, but I understand that she's just doing her job. Yes,
2: exactly, exactly. But then when the voting stuff comes, this is like her being cruel yeah. for no reason.
1: So they're in a group yeah. therapy session and. R.P. McMurphy brings up that the World Series are going to come on and that maybe we could change the schedule so that we could watch the game. Reasonable request. Yeah, totally. She shuts it down because she's like, we have a very strict schedule. We've worked a long time to get it right. We're not going to break it for this. And he's like, even in the fucking can we watch the World Series, there's a riot. Like, we love it. So she's like, well, you know, if you can get everybody to agree you're not the only person on this ward. And so he takes a vote and everybody you can tell is pretty nervous by Mm -hmm. Nurse Ratchet. So they're most of them are hesitant to vote and he doesn't get the majority the next day he ends up kind of winning them over and basically getting everybody to vote for it within the group therapy session but then she kind of throws a twist on him that well you've only got nine nine votes and there's 18 people in in this block and so you don't have the majority which he thinks is a is a you know she plays a rigged game. And so he ends up running around trying to get somebody to raise her hands. And meanwhile, she adjourns the meeting and he finally gets Chief to raise his hand, but she won't accept it because she's like, I adjourned the meeting already.
2: The Chief voted. Now, will you please turn the television set on? Mr. McMurphy, the
1: meeting was adjourned and the vote was closed. But the
2: vote was 10 to 8. The Chief, he's got his hand up. Look. No, Mr. McMurphy,
1: when the meeting was adjourned, the vote was 9 to 9.
2: Ah, oh, come on. You're not going to say that now. You're not going to say that now. You're going to pull that henhouse shit now. with the vote that Chief just voted, it was 10 to 9. I want that television set turned on right now. Uh, it's so Yeah, cruel. it's a power
1: game, and she knows she's playing a little power game with him, and yeah, she'll do anything to win.
0: But it's not. She didn't cross a line. It's inappropriate. Right. It's and just mean. Wrong. It just feels mean. It's mean spirited. Yeah. It's a hundred percent unfair. And
1: again, yeah. it's like, what is going to be good for these people? She's not really thinking about that. Yeah, no. she's just thinking about her. And own you're power. starting
2: to see the way in which she's like therapizing these men in group therapy mm-hmm. and stuff. And it also feels cruel. It also feels like something she's undercutting about her she's undercutting them and the
1: things that they want to express and talk about
2: yeah
1: Um, yeah
0: pushing them pushing them sometimes to talk about things when maybe they're not ready to talk yeah exactly
1: two moments in this movie that brought me to tears and this first one was when he starts pretending to watch the baseball game oh Mm -hmm. and they all gather around and at first they're confused like what is he doing because he's just looking at a, a tv that's turned off and he's going like, Koufax pitches it down the middle. He swings. Oh, he's rounding first. And they all get into it. And like by the time they're all jumping up and cheering, my eyes were watering. I was yeah. like, this is a beautiful little scene. Yeah, is
0: such a great way to one-up somebody. Mm-hmm. Totally. Like, you know? Yeah.
1: <laughs> and at this point, he's basically gotten everybody on his
2: Yeah, side. everybody loves him. He's like the hero mm-hmm.
1: of... And war. he's a manipulator too, but he's a manipulator in a way that like shares the wealth, whereas she's all about just sort of like using fear and power and oppression to do it. He's doing it through like his charisma and making them. He is empowering them at least. He may not be like helping them. You his know, charisma, with their uniqueness, problems. nerve,
2: and talent. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And
1: then Murphy ends up discovering that he he's under the assumption that he's only got to be there for like sixty eight days. So that's kind of why he's just been Ooh, being this his is true a scary, self. Scary
2: scary moment. But he finds out ahead.
1: that there's actually no deadline to how long he can be there. They he's there as long as they think he should be. Well there.
2: because one of the guards says 68 days in prison or in the whatever he says. He's thinking can rules. Yeah, you're thinking can rules. Yeah. And it's like, "Oh no, did he just like fuck himself well
0: also too this is where i kind of like i'm like well, what were you expecting man even in prison if you fuck up too much you your sentence gets extended yeah you do have to behave well, well in prison you can't just go around shanking people well, left but and he's right. not bra-
1: he's not technically breaking like a ton of rule i guess he is but i think he's thinking i can fuck with them but i'm not yeah. as long as i'm not technically breaking the rules they can't like make my sentence longer but I can, he
2: breaks out of the. he, does, of do what he do you does do that he does do that and he's but kind yeah, of
0: I think the real the real shocker maybe I guess you're getting to it in the next scene but is that so many of them are not actually committed that yeah they yeah that's the big reveal voluntarily there mm-hmm. like
2: half of them Majority, yeah, of is them. really
0: hard for him to believe. It's like, why would you? You should be. He says to Billy, like, you should be
1: bird dogging girls, bird dogging chicks, <laughs> and banging Beaver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, and this is the moment when he says, like, "What do you? You guys are treating yourselves like you're crazy. You're not crazy, and um you can tell it immediately." Sh- uh, uh, nurse Ratchet starts to shift in this moment too, because she's like sees the power that he has over them.
2: Yeah, she's like, don't fuck up my bag.
1: And it causes Cheswick to have kind of like a panic attack about his cigarettes. And in this moment too, you also see that um, McMurphy actually does like really care for these guys because Mm -hmm. he's like, all right, give the guy his cigarettes. Like, don't hurt him. Like the guards come over and grab Cheswick and he's like, hey, let him go. You're gonna hurt him. But then ends up getting into a fight himself and the chief comes over and like (laughs) starts protecting McMurphy. Cheswick dies in the book. It's really sad. Ah, what, what happens to him?
0: He died uh, after the incident where he uh, has the outburst and and gets detained. The next day they go swimming and there's like a community pool at the hospital and he dives down and his fingers get caught in the grate. Oh, oh shit At the bottom of the pool. So they're like trying to pull him out and they can't. So (gasps) for some reason they go back up to get a screwdriver and like unscrew the grate. And by the time they pull him out. He's dead. This is a
2: worst nightmare. I used to, I, my dad used to always tell me never, ever to go underwater in a hot tub Mm -hmm. because your hair could get stuck in the grates at the bottom Mm. and suck and kill you. And I don't know if that's true or not, but it haunted me. And I think about it a lot. And wow, this is going to haunt me now too. I'm never Mm. putting my little chubby I, fingers and the like If somebody you don't
0: go back up and get a screwdriver, you break their yeah, fingers. You, rip you, find, their pim- you yeah. find any way to get their hand out. Yeah, yeah.
2: But I'm glad it, they did not do that in the he, movie. Like,
0: unclear if he did that intentionally like as a suicide oh, thing Oh god, or
2: what a brutal way. It was way. an accident,
0: but yeah. Wow. I I was relieved to to see that they didn't, because he, he is definitely more of a character and more endearing in the movie than yeah. in the book. You know, that actor, that act, that's a good example of a character that the actor brings them to life in a way that the book can't do. Yeah, and sure. you fall in love with them and you're like, oh man, I hope they don't kill
1: him. So then they get handcuffed and they get kind of sat outside this room and it's Cheswick. And McMurphy and Chief, and they're kind of waiting for their punishment. I think Cheswick's
0: reaction is because he knows they're about to shock him. They're about to shock him, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: Um, And they're sitting there waiting, and McMurphy offers Chief some juicy fruit, and Chief takes it and then very slyly says, Thank you. And you Uh. see this moment where Jack Nicholson is like, What the fuck? (laughs) And he gives him another piece, and he takes it, and he goes, Ah, (laughs) juicy
2: fruit. You sly son of a bitch, Chief. Can you hear me too? Yeah, you bitch. Well, I'll be goddamn, Chief. (laughs) And they all
0: they all think you're you're deaf and dumb. Jesus Christ. You fool him, Chief.
1: <laughs> you fool him. You fool them all. God damn. And then he's like, You're you and me were the same. <laughs> he's like, what are we doing in here, Chief? Like and they essentially yeah. kind of make a little plan, like, let's break out of this fucking place. And Chief is like, let's go to Canada. And he's like, Yeah, let's fucking do it. <laughs>
2: But he does that say something about but I yeah, loved the, it, they, don't they have a conversation about like we are not the same though? Doesn't she? So that, that, that happens later. Yeah, okay. that
1: happens later. Which I think is a beautiful, beautiful. scene. Beautiful. So then they all get electroshocked. God. And um there's a when, really f- when
0: RP McMurphy first walks in and sees all those people standing in there, my stomach sank I know. Because I know that feeling. Mm-hmm. But and he's uh, trying to
1: play it cool too. He's trying to make jokes. He's like, I'm uh, mm-hmm. making jokes like, well, I'm gonna pee in my pants. You yeah. know, you better but you watch know it. he's, nerv- he's nervous, he's nervous deep down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The um a fun fact about the documentary that I watched, the American Psychiatric Association was super worried about the way this movie was portraying shock treatment. And so they decided in order to try to like rival the bad press that it was going to give them, they decided to make a documentary called Inside the Cuckoo's Nest, where the whole point of it was to show the real like treatment, you know, like. So they actually went back to this same hospital and they got the real patients that were there and they showed the process of a couple of these patients going through shock treatment (laughs) in order to sort of be like, look, it's not so bad. And it totally fucking backfired. Yeah. The documentary came out and people were horrified because they were like, this is real and this feels yeah. barbaric. And um, it ended up having the reverse effect where it actually made the PR behind shock treatment even worse. Right. Which is like it, PR, shock treatment is something that people can do. And like it is something that is some people do voluntarily to mm-hmm. to help them. But I don't think it's. You can't be as, using it as punishment. It's not used as much anymore, maybe at all in terms of like, yeah, forceful treatment. Yeah. Uh, so then we kind of get our final sequence where it's Christmas time.
2: By the way, I realized what I said earlier was wrong. Shelly Duvall was not up for the role of Nurse Ratchet. She was supposed to be the role of Candy, oh, the prostitute. She would have done a pretty good Candy. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that's interesting because it would have been her and Jack together. That was the
1: other thing we did mention is that he goes and picks up, an old girlfriend, but is also I'm pretty sure a prostitute. Definitely, um, A prostitute for sure. Yeah, yeah. in the fishing sequence, uh, and so it's Christmas time. Nurse Ratchet leaves; she leaves him there with Scatman Crothers. Which, speaking of The Shining, oh my gosh, yeah, this is the this is a little mm-hmm. foreshadowing of their uh, adventure together in the Overlook Hotel. <laughs> and yeah, he comes up with a plan that he's going to throw a party, get everybody, including Scatman, boozed up call his girls to to come bring the booze. And then in the process, he's going to escape this place.
2: God, he has so many opportunities to sneak out. I know. He so really many. It hurts.
1: He, he calls the candy. And then um, before they get there, he goes over to chief's bed and basically says like, Hey chief. Tonight's uh, the night. Tonight's the night. Like I'm going to escape. You coming with me. He says, I can't, I just can't.
2: Ugh. It's easier than you think chief. For you, maybe. You're a lot bigger than me. (laughs) (laughs) Why, Chief, you're about as big as a goddamn tree trunk. My papa's real big. He did like he pleased. That's why everybody worked on him. The last time I seen my father, he was blind in the cedars from drinking. And every time he put the bottle to his mouth, he don't suck out of it. It sucks out of him until he shrunk so wrinkled and yellow. Even the dogs don't know him. Killed him, huh? I'm not saying they killed him. They just worked on him. The way they're working on you. It's beautiful. Oh the whole my fucking god! Movie, it makes me
1: teary-eyed. It's all about oppression. Ooh. They're oppressing you, and the, and the bigger your personality, the more they're going to try to to tamp you down. They're going to work on you. It's still, it's still that way. Uh, and that's why I think Ratchet is a true villain. She's a complex villain, but like she is all about oppressing, you, and and mm-hmm. she knows it. And uh,
2: God, and does she v- really? Seal the deal on being a villain at the end of this movie. Yeah,
1: so they all get wasted. McMurphy has his chance to leave, but then Billy wants to like say goodbye to him, and he says, like, I'm, 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 I'm going to miss you, Murphy, and uh, oh, tells boy. him that he wants to, at some point, get a date with Candy because they've been flirting. They flirted on the boat. Seems like they flirted a little bit at the Christmas party, and McMurphy's like, well, it's now or never, buddy, and he basically like kind of forces this little sex get together between them. Lose
2: your virginity.
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely
0: uh,
2: uncomfortable.
1: Yeah, Mm -hmm. and then he ends up accidentally falling asleep while he's waiting for them. He gets so
2: drunk, he passes out. Yeah,
1: and the next morning, Ratchet comes in and sees them all. They've trashed the place. Everybody's passed out. She starts to kind of put everybody in line. There's a great moment where she has um, Martini, Danny DeVito, like pick up her her cap and it's all dirty Mm -hmm. and he gives it to her. And then they can't find Billy, and they end up discovering him in the room post-coital with Candy. And um, you'll notice in this sequence that Billy, not only is he standing up to Nurse Ratchet because he's, he feels like he's evolved, but he's also not stuttering in this sequence. Whoa. She says, like, don't you feel ashamed? And he says, no, I don't. But then the second she says, well, let's see how your mother would Ugh, feel about that.
2: God, it makes my stomach His turn. stutter suddenly
1: starts to return and he essentially has like a full blown freak out. And this is, you can see in McMurphy's face here that he's like, fuck. Because he's been telling Billy this whole time, like, you don't need to be in here. Yeah, And I think he realizes in this moment, like, there's more going on with Billy than... Right. He knows and maybe he does need to be in there, yeah. but this also isn't the place where he needs to be. And it just shows like
0: she she doesn't actually care what's best for them. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. she's more concerned with punishment humiliation and mm-hmm. punishment. And that, you know, makes the stutter come back, right? You and know, even not more able- twisted
1: that she's like friends with his mom. They're yeah. like close. And yet that's also the way he's she's treating him. Ugh, it's so fucked. It's like, what it's not her business. Why does she
2: need to tell his mom? Especially
1: since he's a voluntary person there. Like And
2: hello, HIPAA violation. Honestly. Mm -hmm. Like, what the fuck?
1: She's dirty. You can't get to the end of this movie and say that she's not. I literally wrote
2: down in my notes, I hope this haunts this bitch forever. Well, so yeah, I can't
1: wait to talk about this next scene. So basically he freaks out, they drag him away, she starts to punish McMurphy, and then all of a sudden you hear a blood curdling scream and they run in and Billy has used a shard of broken glass to slice his own throat mm. and everybody sees it he's a goner he's dead and McMurphy grabs her by the throat and starts to strangle her it's Ugh. intense looking like it looks fucking real because her face starts to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger at the end of Total Recall when he's like on Mars. Like her eyes starts popping out of her head and her face gets all red, she looks like a balloon. She said
0: at this point she saw the movie in a small, in a real theater in Chicago. She didn't go, it's not like a premiere or anything. It's yeah. like a real podunk theater in the suburbs of Chicago. And uh, she said, at that moment, the entire theater was standing up, cheering and clapping and for him to strangle her. Hooraying for, for him to strangle her—that would be her. so scary which, to be here. in that she she looks on fondly. She's not yeah. like traumatized by that. She she was like, wow, I've never had a, such an amazing experience.
2: <laughs> but, it would just well, be you know scary if you were working. in the theater of like, oh, don't let them notice. Yeah, that yeah are they going to be yeah. like, you
1: get her, yeah. get her? <laughs> <laughs> but
2: I but mean, it's it is, like intense. you said, it's
0: like it's a very intense thing to see visceral uh, a man do that to a woman, yeah. even with her being quote unquote evil. It's it's still a little hard to reconcile. Um, I but I will say it's uh, it's way more violent in the book, it gets even worse, really? than, than what the movie does. Yeah, right. there's, there's definitely something uh, that heightens it to the next level, but still intense. What do you think, Corey? You think she deserves it? You think you glad
2: he wrapped his hands around her neck? I mean, in relation to the movie, (laughs) if this was real life, no. (laughs) But in relation to the movie, I probably would have been one of those people in the theater, like, standing up. Like, you're just, she's pure villain at this point. Ultimately, it's too sad to cheer for. But you completely understand it. Yeah. I understand. I wish he wouldn't have choked her out. I wish he would have done it with his words to make her feel smaller. Because then maybe he also wouldn't have gotten his brain scrambled. Yeah, and
1: that's the other reason why she's a villain is because she looks at this as like, okay, motherfucker, you're gonna choke me. I'm gonna fucking lobotomize
2: you. Yeah, like what the fuck is that like a thing?
1: Yeah, like that. Like I mean, it's maybe not really a thing anymore, but it certainly was a thing.
2: And what is lobotomizing? It's, it's like, like
1: scrambling your brain.
2: Oh my god! <laughs> on what planet, though? That would never be allowed.
1: I mean, I got a feeling it happened probably more so. I'm than sure you it did about. happen,
2: think- but it's like the, he should just go back to prison. He shouldn't uh, exactly. The, yeah. The the
1: th- what should have happened to him here? Because they what we didn't talk about is there's a scene that happens a little bit earlier on in the movie where the doctors are all discussing. McMurphy. And they basically all agree that he's He's not not crazy, crazy. but they're like, he is dangerous. And they, all the doctors, including Dr. Spivey want to just send him back. Yeah. They want to just send him out. And it's nurse ratchet that says, Uh are we really going to send our problems onto other people? Well, I think he should stay here, which is vindictive. It's just her being sadistic. Horrible. Any normal person would look at this situation and say, this man needs to go to prison. But she's using her power to get the ultimate revenge, to yeah. like win the war that she's been having with him. Yeah, and no, be like, I'm going to fucking. She essentially just kills him. She has it's him the executed. Final, it's the final
0: stroke of evil.
1: Mm-hmm. Cut two days later, all the other guys are playing cards again and um, they're talking about McMurphy. One guy comes out and he's like, guys. I heard he escaped like he beat up the guards and he jumped out the window and he escaped and you can see the excitement on some of it. Then like Harding is like, ah, nah, I heard he's upstairs. They got him doped up. There's all these rumors
2: are swirling about. So sad. Did you, Corey,
0: did you did you know that this was coming?
2: I didn't remember this. No, Hmm. I figured once he choked her out that his ass was. Grass. So when they
0: were uh, holding him in the dark and laying him in bed, you you still were
1: like, what's going on? Wait. When they marched him out? You knew then at that point.
2: Yes. I mean, I think I was hopeful that maybe he's just playing. But it's like, if you look at the... So yeah,
1: Chief is asleep in bed and he wakes up because he hears a noise and he sees them carting. Because I
2: think Chief thinks that he might still be He does
1: because he sees them carting him to bed and Chief sneaks over and he says... I've been waiting for you, Mac. I didn't want to leave without you. I feel as big as a damn mountain. That made me cry. When he tells him that he feels as big as a damn mountain. Oh,
2: God. Well, he was like, I knew you wouldn't leave without
1: me. Yeah. (sighs) Brutal. And he immediately notices that he's looking weird and he has a big old scar on his head. Two
0: big old scars.
1: And then he continues talking to him as if they're going to leave, which I also think is beautiful. He says, I'm not going to go without you, Mac. You're coming with me. He grabs a pillow.
2: I thought he was going to carry him out. And right before the... he puts <laughs> a pillow on his
1: face, he says, let's go. And smothers him. Yeah. Because he's going to take his fucking spirit with him.
2: Hell yeah. Oh, that makes me choked up.
1: <sighs> yeah. It's good. Uh, and then he, he uh, fulfills Murphy's prophecy, which is another scene we didn't talk about. Earlier in the movie, he makes a bet with the group that he can rip the f- the fountain out of the floor yeah. and throw it through the window. <laughs> Nobody believes he can. Billy's going like, M- Mac, you can't you-, you can't do it. And he's like, out of my way, son. You're using my oxygen. And he can't. It's a really great scene. At least I tried. At least I tried. But then old Chief here, he can do it. He goes and grabs it. Looks fucking awesome. He rips his thing out of the floor. Christopher Lloyd wakes up. Sees him doing it. He throws the fountain through the window, goes running out, and then we cut to Christopher Lloyd, and he just starts laughing. He wakes up everybody, cheering, laughing. He has a great Love moment, him. too, where he Love suddenly him. stops laughing. He's like, oh! And that great singing saw music comes back in as we watch Chief like oh, run over the so horizon. So beautiful. Free. Jack Nietzsche leads us out. And from what I hear in the book, uh, a lot of them leave. Is that correct? Like, he inspires a lot of them to leave at the end of the book? Not like leave out the window, but they decide oh, to, like, yes. leave yeah, yeah. The, people, the institution.
0: after McMurphy was lobotomized, a bunch of voluntary people yeah. check themselves
2: out. And Nobody do you, jumps do out do you the window. That's, that's what I meant. Right. That's what I meant. From, do you, does it mention anything about Ratchet? When they're like all deciding to leave?
0: Uh, she still works there. You know, she's in uh, bruised up and has a bandage around her neck, but she's she's still there.
2: Yeah. Ugh, brutal.
0: brutal. In the book, one thing I like that, I, I mean, I cried at the end of the book uh, a lot more emotional to me than, than in the movie because the moment when Chief lifts up the... Machinery is is built up so much in the book to the point where chief can't do it in the beginning He's not strong enough. He hasn't been working out. It's kind of funny But McMurphy basically is like preparing him for this breakout by saying I'm gonna train you Mm. and so there's a lot more building up between them because McMurphy is helping him lift weights and gets stronger, right. doing his like secret, you know, workout routine, and and Chief starts noticing his body changing in the mirror and seeing himself like uh. young again, like he was back in high school yeah. and when he used to play football. So it's really an earned moment where like Chief couldn't have done that without the help of McMurphy's training, and so you don't know if he's gonna lift it up at the at the end of the book, but, right? Yeah.
1: We should also mention too that the um, the title "One flew over the cuckoo's nest" comes from a poem that I think in the book Chief says like his mother read to him. Right? There's, it's mm-hmm. it's from like his family. And yeah. The poem is uh, "Ventry, mintery cuttery corn apple seed and apple thorn wire briar, limber lock three geese in a flock one flew east and one flew west and one flew over the cuckoo's nest.
2: Mm.
0: You know, something else interesting about cuckoos is the birds take their eggs and they drop them in the nests of other birds, not other cuckoos, other species of birds, Mm. one egg per nest and the egg hatches. And if there are other eggs in the nest, the bird kicks all the eggs out. And if there are live Babies in the nest, the bird, the cuckoo will also kick them out of the nest, nest to their death.
1: Damn.
2: So cuckoos are evil. cuckoos are little
1: bitches.
0: It's it's a little wild. <laughs> I, I never knew that.
1: I guess that's why they call crazy people cuckoos, because cuckoos, the birds themselves, yeah, crazy ass motherfuckers. I guess so.
0: Wow. Can I read a brief? Uh, so Chuck Palahniuk, the writer of Fight Club, did a. Forward to the new edition of the book. Mm. It's really short Can I just read a couple paragraphs because I think it gives you something to think about It's pretty obvious when you watch the movie, but I just found the way he framed it to be Pretty relevant. So he wrote this in 2007 so he said some people I love they hate this book people say the story is racist and sexist They say Kessie attacks blacks and women makes them the villains. The women are either frigid monsters or whores. The blacks are sadistic sodomites. Based on whether they accept that theory, people love the story or they hate it as if we only have the two options. But for a moment, let's consider a third. Instead of a battle between genders and races, consider that One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is about the paradox of living in a modern democracy of only two political parties, a dominant theme of modern culture. Cuckoo's Nest tells the same story as the most popular novels of the last century. A story we'll be telling and retelling because that paradox is still our paradox, and we still struggle with Cassie's central conflict. How can you live within a democracy that expects you to participate, to hold an opinion and vote and thereby control and be responsible for your society? But at the same time, you must surrender and follow the will of others if even the slimmest majority disagrees with you. To live in a democracy, you must be willing to live as a savior or a slave, to have all or nothing, and you have very little control over that choice. Either way, you'll be lost, destroyed, either by yourself, out of self-hatred, or by your society because you pose too big a threat. Or, or you can choose something different. You can learn from the destruction of others, you can create and live into a new system, you can rise above the either-or choice of being a parent versus a child. A savior versus a slave, and you could become an adult, not rebelling against or caving into your culture, but creating a vision of your own and working to make that option into something real. That consider that as the core of one flow over the cuckoo's nest, the rebel and the follower and the enlightened witness. I thought what he was saying about democracy mm. and mm-hmm. all or nothing, specifically that you have to surrender and follow the will of others if even the slimmest majority disagrees with you. I just thought back to like 2016 and to Trump and to this just like every single time we have an election dating back forever, it's it's the popular vote, you know, always going one way and the electoral college going another way. And so almost 50% of the nation then has to have, you know, Donald Trump as their president for 4 years when you know, it's either we're the majority or we're like the slim majority, mm-hmm. and so it's just interesting to think about the way that cuckoo's nest sort of relates, still relates today to our yeah. modern political system and and the ways that we vote and participate, but then we um, we get stuck.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that plays into the why it's interesting that so many of the Patients here are voluntary, you know? They're voluntarily putting themselves through this. Mm -hmm. Palinuk there is highlighting the the chief character as sort of the the witness. Yeah. Um, Chief
0: is the enlightened witness, the one who leaves sort of transformed by the whole Mm -hmm. experience. That the rebel, the one who comes in and challenges the system and ultimately... Freeze, people is not the one who is saved, but it's, it's the silent witness, the one who's kind of like watching all of this. Yeah,
1: And another interesting comparison to, to the nurse ratchet character is the, is the Gene Hackman character in unforgiven. I feel like they are comparable in a lot Mm -hmm. of ways where they are. We had a similar conversation about how he's doing what he thinks is the right thing, but he's also being savage. And it's ultimately what, the point I think both movies are making is about like the corruption of power and what power does to corrupt you as a person. um, I think applies to nurse ratchet too. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It gave me a lot to think about and, and it's the themes of the book and of the movie are uh, really hard to, Forget, you know, I mean, it, it's this character of Jack Nicholson to me in a lot of ways is very relatable. Like, I just feel like mm-hmm. when I was a student, when I was a kid, you saw, you know, you yeah. talked about this before. <laughs> I I don't like the idea that we, uh, I, you know, I was a little bit more of an asshole when I was younger. But the, the idea that, like, I'm just supposed to respect you because you're the teacher or you're the adult or you're mm-hmm. the authority I just always wanted to challenge that ever since I was a kid. I was like a class clown. nothing I'm proud of, but it didn't get me anywhere. It didn't make a uh, a damn difference. I was just pissing people off, yeah. but you know the, the character to me is so relatable because I was trying to to be that I was trying to challenge people and uh not be hurtful or dis or uh hurt anyone. But, you know, that's kind of the consequence too. You play the role of the joker um, and you're also playing into the system as well, too.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, and the positive, the, you know, a positive thing that can come from a challenger is it challenges the authority to um, really show themselves and step up to if, okay, if you're doing this for any kind of good, now's your time to do it. And you know, I think the Louise Fletcher character is exposed for that. She's not really there for good. You know she's there for power. She's there for power. And I think what you know, what you saw in good teachers was that they took your challenge. And found a way to inspire you out of it, you know, and earn your yeah. respect.
0: I always respected teachers or adults who I felt earned that respect. And I, I don't behave that way anymore now. Now I give you the benefit of the doubt. And then if you give me a reason to believe yeah. that you don't deserve respect, then I will just walk away. <laughs>
1: but I wonder if but, Chuck Palahniuk was inspired by the, uh, the Cheswick death sequence at the bottom of the pool for his story Guts. Oh, yeah. Remember that Mm -hmm. story about the guy Mm -hmm. who puts his butthole to the thing and it sucks his guts out at the bottom of a pool? (laughs) In the novel,
0: or in the novel, the haunted collection of short stories. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Maybe he was inspired by that sequence. Uh, Well, let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back to talk final thoughts on One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods, Welcome back to Cinema Possessed, and we are talking final thoughts on Milos Forman's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Justin? Going to start with you.
0: I think the movie is great. i am been saying it this whole podcast, but I'm a little biased from the book. To me, if I had to choose one to consume again, it, it's hands down the book. I just feel like the language itself had me emotional, the poetry of it, the level of detail that the book goes into. And ultimately, I think it's easy to speculate that a version that uses Chief's narration wouldn't have been as effective. But to me... It's, it's an element you can't separate from the book Mm -hmm. hearing what happens in this facility from the POV of chief to me is integral to, uh, the guts of the story and, and I missed it. I missed it in the movie and, uh, I'm daydreaming about what that would have looked like. I'm also like Friedkin when we talked about the exorcist, the way he went through that book and highlighted sections that he wanted Blatty to incorporate into the script. I had so many scenes that I dog ear that I was like, Ooh, I can't wait to see this in the movie. Uh, I can't wait to see this. And just feel like I would have chosen some different stuff than that being said, I think corniness aside and book aside, um, There's just too many damn strong things about this movie uh, to to not recommend and to not revisit. And I think the movie is so strong because the core concept and themes and and the source material is so damn strong. And then you have a cast who elevates it to a whole other level, Uh, not just Nicholson, but everybody. Mm -hmm. And... Then the final layer for me, which is always the behind the scenes. How did they make it? Were they respectful? Did they come in and and create a wake of destruction in their path? Or did they come in and um, do things respectfully? And I think this movie is a textbook example of how to go into a space, um, especially one that has some sensitivity that needs to be considered around it. And not only did things to their best of their abilities, it's not perfect, um, but the movies from 1975, how could it be? But they brought the community into the film and made them extras and made them crew members and paid them and brought joy to their life. That to me is extremely meaningful and adds value to the film, to the experience of of the movie. I think I watched the same doc that you watched, but mm-hmm. one, one thing Michael Douglas said was after the movie came out, Florida had this law that you could be arrested if you were, if you seemed crazy, like yes. seemed crazy. Mm-hmm. And after the movie came out, they got rid of that law. Like you couldn't be arrested anymore if Whoa. you were acting in a way that was weird or different or yeah. perceived to be crazy. I don't know too much about that law, but it sounds interesting the way that the movie had a positive impact on on, Mm -hmm. uh, a bad law,
1: And it's interesting because you will look at a movie like this nowadays and you've seen the story kind of told so many different times that it's the message of the movie feels obvious, Mm -hmm. but I think back then it was more crucial. And I think the way I saw it as a kid probably relates more to the way people saw it back then of like, this is sort of information that maybe was actually changing people's perspectives in a cool way. So Mm -hmm. I think sounds like it was a very positive uh, impact that this movie made overall.
0: Um, All in all, I think the movie deserves um, a lot of the accolades. I think, you know, best, best picture did it deserve to win over some of these other movies, you know, Spielberg yeah, we was a little un, un, unhappy. He got snubbed for Jaws. Best director, yeah. Um, we, did, we didn't
1: I, mention, I mentioned it in the song, we didn't talk about it, but this movie won all five of the major categories. So won Best Picture, yeah. Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, and Best Screenplay.
0: And I think the last time it happened was uh, Frank, Frank Capra. It uh, happened one night. It happened one night. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so And big, then only big, happened
1: again many years later when uh, Silence of the Lambs
0: did something. Yeah big night for them i mean well-deserved louise fletcher yes jack nicholson yes uh director sure best picture i don't know i'm not i'm i'm unsure on that but congratulations
1: know, uh, to what them. else was
2: up that night
1: jaws was up that mm-hmm. night big nashville. ones nashville there was another oh um barry linden i believe
0: mm-hmm. a fellini film was it omacord
1: Maybe yeah, maybe it was on record mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Huge. I mean, all those are huge wow. classics. Yeah,
0: hard to hard to compete against yeah. all of that. But. I definitely recommend reading the book. There's, there's I honestly, want to. There's yeah, even, I really want to. There's know even too. more dated stuff in the book, like that. His Palinik's intro about racism yeah, it's and sexism. He's it's saying there, that yeah. for a reason. It's yeah, because yeah. there's a lot of shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of dark stuff in the book, but you can't erase that stuff. You have to keep it around as a record. You know. Yeah. It's it's nineteen. The kid was twenty four years old when he started writing the book, and it was in the sixties. Um, but he's not. I don't think he's going as overboard as you think, but I understand why people are are upset. And I don't think Palanick is being a troll and saying "fuck those people." I yeah. think he's just saying there there is value to the book, uh, even though there might be some questionable material in it. And I think the movie does a good job of sort of filtering even more of that stuff out. Yeah, like, I read. Kudos for. I read
1: a number of reviews at the time, and they all mention that aspect that the movie humanizes the book in a lot of ways because it filters out a lot of that stuff that is maybe coming from Kesey Mm -hmm. and particularly in regards to nurse Ratchet's character. I saw multiple uh, reviews basically say to the effect that like, if you've never read the book, her depiction in this movie is going to appall you because she's going to seem like a villain. But if you read the book, her depiction in this movie is going to actually seem way more sympathetic. And Mm. you're going to come out being like, oh, she's not, I kind of understand her more because you got this version in the book. That's just like a she devil. Milos Forman seemed to his whole approach from, from the aesthetic to the characters was to like, kind of filter this through humanity a little bit. I think that's
0: important. And I think that that's the right choice because, especially for a film, because that's honestly more haunting, you know, the, For the, sure. ca- mm-hmm. the character who looks like her and who acts like her and who, th- especially who, like Corey said, thinks that she's doing the right thing, but is actually doing really awful things. I mean, it's the coldest evil. It's awful.
1: Yeah.
2: Corey, any final thoughts? I mean, I think Justin summed it up pretty well. I will say it really makes me want to read the book. And just from everything that Justin has said about the book. It makes me think this is actually like a perfect read the book, then watch the movie for like high school kids. Cause it's like, it will open up your mind so much and make you think in such a different way. I mean, even like as an adult, you know, we live in Los Angeles where there's lots of um, mentally ill people that we pass on the street every single day regularly. And it may, it does like a movie like this does make you, you know open your mind a bit more and like, think about not that like, you know, we're not necessarily, but you kind of become numb to it a bit. And I think a movie like this makes you think a little bit mm-hmm. more too. And like, you know, humanizes. Yeah. Humanizes the situation. Um From a purely like entertainment standpoint, I think that I would definitely recommend this movie. I mean, the acting in this movie is so phenomenal. And like to see Jack Nicholson, He's like just one of the greatest I think, and is such a dynamic performer and to see him and I you know arguably his first breakout role um is exciting and fun and uh inspiring too um
0: definitely his first time playing a bad boy too
2: yeah 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 i uh I loved it and I would definitely I would watch it again and I would definitely recommend it
1: yeah I agree. I uh, think the movie is a masterpiece. I was surprised at how well it held up in terms of the impact that it has and, and you know how relatively unproblematic the movie ultimately is and um, sort of good-natured that it, that it ultimately is, too. Mm-hmm. Um, just a surprise. You don't get that a lot with movies from 1975, especially ones that are dabbling in this kind of, at times, touchy stuff. I watched this on a really old... DVD that I've had for forever. I love Oof. the case. It's a little snap case. It's even got a little um, double fold, which is so fun. So, yours was,
0: was yours a picture in a picture? Like, the widescreen box was? Yes. I had, to
1: z- nice. I had to hit the zoom yeah. button on the, to, in order to fill it, and it, it made the quality look pretty crappy. I got used to it. Um, Special
0: features were kind of weak.
1: Zilch. I don't think there was, I mean, all the special features were written. So there yeah. was like a little bit of a written behind the scenes thing that you could read, but there was no like video features, no interviews. I do like this font. <sighs> yeah. I mean, it's great, and there, <laughs> I think there is a, a really good, maybe even a digibook book, uh, Blu-ray that has like all sorts of new documentaries and stuff on it. Um, so yeah. I'm going to upgrade.
0: I used to have it.
1: You're
2: going to upgrade. I'm going to
1: upgrade. So and I'm going to give gonna this, go on the Patreon? I'm going to put this up for adoption. Just warning you folks, the quality is not great, but it's in great condition. And a lot of other DVDs are still sitting there too. So if anybody's listening, they want to join the Patreon, go grab yourself one of those DVDs. They are there for free. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, well, now that we've said everything there is to say about One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, what do you say we play? <laughs> the Cuckoo, 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 Cuckoo can you name the films featuring these kooky inmates? We are not just playing for points, folks. We are playing for juicy fruits. Ooh. So if you want a juicy fruit, you got to get the question right, Justin. I'll mail that you up yours. on the Patreon. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whoever gets I—that's I think. Let's say that whoever gets the one flew over the cuckoo's nest off of the Patreon, you send them a pack of. You juicy get a free fruit pack as well. of juicy fruits. I, I know you got three with that.
0: The coolest movie merch of all time would be a pack of juicy fruit signed by Jack. Jack Nicholson.
2: Nicholson. Oh, <laughs> that would be- that would be so for
1: me it would be the pack of nudie cards, the official screen sure, news sure, nudie sure, card pack. Sure. But you're kidding me! If, if
2: I came home and I was like, "Guess who I just met?" and it was, and I got Jack Nicholson to sign a pack of juicy fruit, you'd be losing your motherfucking mind. Of course. Mind.
1: All right. Question number one.
2: I want to eat this? Right no, no, no! Now. You did not earn that. He snatched the juicy fruit you out get of my I'll let you win.
1: Give it to her now. I'll let Corey win. <laughs> no, no. You get it when you get the point. Each point is worth one stick. Okay. Ooh. Cool. cool, Should have been
0: cigarettes. Dog. Damn. Dimes. Dimes.
1: Yeah, but I don't want to promote smoking. But you could have
2: been candy cigarettes. Candy cigarettes.
1: <laughs> All right. Question number one. Angelina Jolie won an Oscar for her supporting performance as a volatile sociopath Corey, in this Cory,
2: I said my name first. Cory he said her name bitch. first. Girl interrupted. There's she kissed no her brother okay, okay. on the red carpet. I'm gonna
1: give this to Cory, but from here on, you don't have to say your name, just about the answer. because oh, so you're
2: changing rules left and right. I'm changing
1: it now just for- Well, the, it's the Zoom. It's the lag. It's for the Zoom, and I think this is the easiest quiz I've ever put together. Mm. So you may need the speed of like just interrupting me.
2: Fine. How is it? Juicy fruit? Sorry for people who hate to hear these things. It's good. You like it? I can tell it's going to lose flavor by the end of the next question. Five seconds. Question number two.
1: Brad Pitt plays a twitchy, fast-talking loon who may also be a radical revolutionary. Twelve monkeys. Justin, twelve monkeys. Corey got it. (laughs) Two juicy fruits for Corey. I'm just going to keep putting them in my mouth. (laughs) Yeah, you can just keep the flavor going. Question number three. Brittany Murphy chilled audiences with her deeply disturbed. Delivery Girl Interrupted. Of the line, oh.
2: I'll Never Tell. Oh, God damn it. In
1: this 2001 film.
2: I can imagine it perfectly. Isn't Michael Douglas in this movie? Mm-hmm.
1: She is also in Girl Interrupted, but I'll it's not never Girl
2: Interrupted. I can't think of what the movie is. Justin, called. do you
1: remember the movie?
2: I'll Never Tell.
1: Michael Douglas. Michael Mm -hmm. Douglas is like she's witness to a murder, but Mm -hmm. she's like in an insane asylum, and she will never tell him (laughs) what she saw. (laughs) Sounds
0: familiar. It's it's a two thousand
1: and one horror thriller, kind of you know psychological thriller.
2: The trailer used to play all the time on TV.
1: You can't think of any aspect of the title. No. Hmm.
2: It's, is there a number in it?
1: There's not a number in it.
2: <sighs> I know people are screaming it right now. Yeah, I don't
1: know. Okay, then nobody gets <coughs> it. Don't
2: Say a Word. Uh, yeah.
1: 2001. Okay, question number four. Linda Hamilton plays a doomsday fanatic who believes her son is the savior of the, the Terminator. human race. Terminator. In this 1992 Terminator two. film. Terminator 2. It. That's bullshit. She doesn't go to an asylum in Terminator 1, but she is in one in Terminator 2. These are inmates. These are asylum inmates.
2: Third piece of juicy fruit going in. <laughs>
1: All right. We don't have time to hear
0: the whole question. We just, Linda <laughs> Hamilton, you got to say it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> question number five Tom Hardy plays Britain's most violent criminal who finds himself. Bronco, Bronson. Bruno, Bronson. Justin gets <laughs> a juicy fruit. Catch. (laughs) Let us know how it tastes. Yeah. Okay, question number six. So it's, Corey has four and Justin has one. Nobody got the fifth question. I
2: think I only have three. Oh Oh, really? Yeah, because you just gave, I have three, you just gave one to Justin and then we didn't win one.
1: Oh, okay, you have three. Yeah, that's right, that's right. You have three, Justin has one. Question number six. Claire Foy plays a woman who is involuntarily committed while fleeing from a man she believes is stalking her in this 2018 film. Couldn't tell you. That doesn't even ring a bell for you? It does.
0: I know that. I know the movie. I love it. Have I seen <laughs> I'm just it? Just trying to think of the name.
1: I don't um, know if you've let's... seen it.
2: Love Claire Foy. It starts with a. You know what letter it starts with? I just... <laughs>
0: Please give me a second. Can I get points <laughs> if I say the
2: director? No. But say it. Mm-mm. No, shut up, Corey. <laughs> I think he thinks it starts with a U. I think you, I this saw movie doesn't even a ring a, a bell U? for you, Corey? Does it start with a U? I'll never tell. No, it's not ringing a bell. The only Claire Foy movie I can think of is that movie she was in with Ryan Gosling where he was going to space, First Man. Is that even Claire Foy? No, just it's not, not Claire, like Foy. Your Claire Foy. That is Claire Foy. That is Claire Foy? Yeah.
1: I'll give you a hint, Justin.
0: I know the movie.
1: I know. I'm giving okay. a hint on the title.
0: Okay, thank you.
2: It is... If I get it, it's going to be hilarious.
1: It's similar to a description that would be used for a certain clown posse.
2: Insane. Oh, Insanity. Unsane.
0: unsane with Steven Soderbergh <laughs> and Claire Foy shot on an iPhone. Justin, Don't do it it's another. It's Justin just gets a, another juicy fruit. I guess it. it wasn't a memorable title.
1: Okay. So that's two to three. This final question is worth four juicy fruits. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, question number seven. Pruitt Taylor Vince plays a murderous inmate with multiple personalities in this 2003 psychological thriller. Identity?
2: I was just about to say that, damn it.
1: Justin wins the
2: (laughs) cuckoo.
0: I oh, could cool. see on Jack's face, he oh, was like, <laughs> he was hiding glee. I knew that would for be a those tough who don't, one. Did we talk about that party on this podcast? No, so. we, we talked have... about the
1: Tom Hanks party. We, we really didn't really never identity. mentioned identity? No. no. For those who are wondering, for my birthday one year.
2: Your 30th birthday. My
1: 30th birthday, I had an identity-themed birthday party. Identity is a 2003 movie that, as we heard, stars Pruitt Taylor-Vince, is a guy with multiple personalities. Don't
2: give away the twists if they want to see it. Also it also
1: stars John Cusack. It stars John C. McGinley. It stars Amanda Peet. Uh, a whole slew. Uh, Jake Busey, Ray Liotta, tons of people in it. The reason why I chose it as my birthday theme is, one, I do enjoy the film, but the big thing is is, is that, that there's...
2: Just say that the date is important. Don't say why.
1: Well, I'll just say that There's a point in the movie when all the characters realize that they all share the same birthday, which is my birthday, May 10th. So I decided to have an identity-themed birthday party, and it was a classic. It was an all-timer.
2: It was an all-timer.
1: We put up identity decorations. We had trivia. We We,
2: we made a cake that was was Jack, Justin, and I's faces on it. Replacing the faces of the actors on the movie There poster. was
1: a pinata of John C. McGinley's head mm-hmm. from the film.
2: Everybody got a motel key when they came in.
1: The front door looked like a motel entrance the whole movie takes place during a rainstorm so when you walked in we made it look like it was raining mm-hmm. there was a life size replica of Jake Busey with a baseball bat shoved down God, his damn, throat we
2: were so good at yeah. throwing parties back Those in the were day fine.
1: we had the soundtrack playing on CD of the boombox, and then we had the movie playing <laughs> in silent on the TV
2: mm-hmm. it was incredible
1: we went all out guys and if you weren't there I'm sorry you missed it but you can go watch the movie and, and relive it in a certain way mm-hmm. Just want to give you a subscribe
0: to our Patreon. We'll invite you to our next birthday
1: party. Oh, yeah, <laughs> we'll upload pictures. Just want to give
2: you it. a juicy fruit update. I have three pieces, almost no flavor left.
1: What do you like better, the juicy fruit edition in Cuckoo's Nest or the Reese's Pieces edition in ET?
2: Reese's Pieces. Reese's. For sure, that's my favorite candy for one.
1: Do you think that Cuckoo's Nest helps sell more juicy fruit for sure? No. Mm-hmm. You don't think anybody (laughs) bought more juice? I mean, I bought it for this because of the movie. So in that sense, they sold one that they wouldn't have. Well, that, my friends, is the show. Follow us on social media at Cinema Possessed Pod, where we announce next week's movie ahead of time. And if you want to get in touch with us, email us at cinemapossessedpod at gmail.com. And if you want to get even more possessed, head on over to patreon.com cinemapossessedpod and unlock the Cinema Possessed bonus materials, our bi-monthly bonus episodes where we talk about more than just what's in our collection. Plus, you'll gain exclusive access to Patreon-only giveaways and community message boards. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your pods and as always keep watching the movies you love and stay possessed
2: later bye bye